0: who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles to optimize human performance. In this episode, we have Rob Anderson, strength and conditioning coach for the Scottish Rugby Academy and director of Athletic Evolution, a podcast which focuses on youth athlete development. Rob and I discuss the current misconceptions surrounding strength training for youth development, including why strength training does not stunt your growth and why we shouldn't just focus on aerobic conditioning at young ages. We also hear how Rob's wealth of experience has developed his approach to coaching youth athletes. So if you coach youth athletes, work in schools, or are currently a developing athlete yourself, this episode gives plenty of take-home messages for you to implement into your own coaching and training. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube, head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, and check out all of our other episodes. But for now, here is Rob Anderson. Hey Rob, how are you doing? Thank you for being on The Progress Theory.
1: Yeah, great, Phil. Thanks for the invite. I'm really looking forward to it. It's been a long time, so it'll be good to catch up.
0: I know. I know we haven't actually seen each other face-to-face for a while, but um, we were actually um, speaking through Instagram the other day on, on probably quite a separate issue, or how the strength and conditioning industry is going, and we were talking about how people are starting to use different names for the same thing as a way of trying to make themselves sound sound more intelligent or trying to get attention on social media. And it was great that we sort of went into that discussion because it allowed me an opportunity to uh, invite you to the Progress Theory because there's a number of different topics I wanted to cover on on this show, and youth strength training was definitely one of them. And I always wanted to ask you, because I've listened to a number of your podcasts on the athletic evolution... I thought that was the perfect opportunity to ask and, and to get you on. So, before we actually go into discussing the topics we wanted to, do you want to give a little bit of an overview of yourself?
1: Yeah, totally. And as I said, thanks for, uh, for inviting me. It's always funny being on the other side. You know, when you host hosting yeah. podcasts, you know, you're you not know used to being a guest. So, it's cool to be uh, on the flip side and, and uh, get a reminder of what it's like on that side. So, yeah, I mean, for me, um, I guess a bit in terms of my background, Growing up, my big passion was football, you know, known as soccer in Australia, where I grew up. I had probably pipe dreams of being a Premier League footballer, which uh, when I came to the UK, realized I was very far away from (laughs) achieving. And being, you know, that's kind of my personality, is I'd rather find out and get told and be able to pivot and move on to something else than be the guy in the pub who says, oh, I could have been this, I could have been that. So for (laughs) me, that was kind of the, I'd always done a little bit of coaching um, alongside playing. And that was when I kind of was like, well, you know, those who can't do teach and those who can't teach, teach PE. So, you know, that's kind of how I fell into coaching um, was I wanted to, if I couldn't be an athlete, the next best thing was to be around them um, and be involved in that process. But I've always been really intrigued by human potential. Like I remember sitting in the back seat of the car when I was maybe like 10 years old and you're driving down the street and, and, you know, you drive past someone and I think, I wonder what that person's capable of. I wonder if they're like a world mm. champion golfer but I never picked up a golf club. Or, you know, like I wonder if they're, you know, got this this potential ability, but they've never uncovered it. So I've always had that kind of thing in the back of my head of, of helping people achieve potential or at least that curiosity around potential. And for me, I think the biggest thing is just the impact you can have in youth athletes at, at such formative years. You know, like when you get someone at 10, 12, largely a blank canvas, so being able to, you know, influence them, create some formative habits that, that will serve them not just through sport, but through life. On and off the pitch is a really a satisfying thing for me. So that's kind of what caught my attention. Um, obviously, from a kind of certification and qualification wise, uh, we met St Mary's where I did my my undergrad in strength conditioning, masters in applied sport and exercise physiology, and you know did my UKSCA and all that kind of jazz um, many moons ago. Now it's scary when you look at the renewal and realise it's been a decade that's <laughs> gone yeah. pretty quick.
0: I know that um, feeling.
1: But yeah, that was kind of the the entry, and then did a a bit of a spell down at a, uh, a sports school in Bournemouth, um, a little bit of a spell with Wolverhampton Wanderers with a slightly misguided PhD opportunity that I did and then stopped. And then I've winded up um, for the last four years, coming up to five years, working for Scottish rugby in their academy system. So I'm currently the the lead uh, academy strength and conditioning coach for the Caledonia region. So Scottish rugby is divided into four regions, Edinburgh, Glasgow, the borders, and then everything else, um, which is Caledonia, so the largest region geographically. Um, and then as of next week, I'll be moving back to the borders to to take the reins there and, and lead the program there, essentially preparing guys for the next level to get a professional contract or as close to. And then alongside that, you typically get given a national team. So over the last four years, I've done the other 16s, 17s and 18s um, national teams. So yeah, pretty much found my bag being working with under 18s as, as my specialism. Mm. That's
0: quite an extensive uh, history of practice. What made you sort of gear towards sort of strength and conditioning for youth athletes? Like you kind of highlighted it in your description there when you said working with youth athletes from the ages of 10 to 14, they're kind of a blank canvas. And, you know, there's a real opportunity to really get them on that direction headed towards what they can actually achieve, you know, achieve their true potential. But yeah, what was it that really related to you when it came to youth athlete training?
1: I think, and I'm going to pinch this from, from Jared Deacon, one of my colleagues at a Scottish rugby is people don't recognize that youth coaching is its own specialism, which is bizarre because we have a direct parallel in education. So, you know, if you were to meet someone at a party, for example, and they said they were a primary school teacher, you wouldn't say, oh, so when are you going to coach secondary school? When sure. are you going to teach? At, you know, and when are you going to teach in a university? But in strength and conditioning, there's this paradigm that you're obviously in the academy because you're not very good. And when you get the opportunity, you'll progress on the reserves. And, you know, ultimately the aim is to work with the first team, obviously, because that's what's on Sky Sports. But in education, there's a recognition that working with primary school-aged kids is a specialism. Working with secondary school-aged is a specialism. Working with undergraduates is a specialism. Like, we don't have this, I guess, judgment or misconception that it's it's like a stepping stone to the next level of education. And that's very much how I view physical preparation. Like, youth coaching, for me, is its own specialism? And, you know, we'll go into why that is. But the biggest thing for me is I see more bad coaches than good ones operating at this level. And I think it's a real travesty for the athletes that are coming through because they're not getting the best start that they could. Um, and, and for me, this came from working with the older ones and thinking, oh, I wish I got them at 18. And then working mm-hmm. with the 18-year-olds and thinking, geez, I wish I got them at 16. And then getting younger and younger and thinking, actually, you know, and I've worked around this environment for a while now, a lot of people pay lip service to long-term athletic development and the importance of the fundamentals in the early stages. But that's where the least resources are given and the most inexperienced coaches are allocated. So we we kind of like, we pay lip service to this being such an important role when it's pivotal because it underpins the next stage and you know how they move is so important and their habits are so important and forming. But then we place the most inexperienced people there and give them their resources. So really there's a paradox for me in youth sport, which is at the senior level... Where the least people are participating, and it's you know 0.1 percent of the pros are, are at that level, that's where all the resources are. That's where all the expertise is. That's where we allocate the greatest level of you know expertise. But at the grassroots level or at the academy level, where there's the most people involved, mm. is where there's the least resources and the least coaching expertise. And really, if you think about it, that's kind of out of whack, and it should only flip the other way. Um, so there's there's a few places around the world that really invest in that bottom end and they see the results. Like Barcelona, you know, a lot of their best coaches are in the Academy. Manchester United heavily invested in the Academy system. Southampton are the same. Arsenal are now the same. So when you look at places that do that, they reap the benefits. But the problem is you don't see it for four, five, six years. So I think the nature of sport is there's a bit of an immediate thing of the result on the weekend with the first team. And because of that, the Academy kind of suffers. And there's just this inherent paradigm of moving on to the next level you know if i work with the 18s I want to work with the 21s I want to work with the seniors whereas there's very few people who go no this is this is my this is my jam this is my specialism this is the the population and my skills are best for and where i want to stay and really develop and see them kick on so for me the best way for me to kind of summarize it is every time i see one of my players step into the pro environment for me that's like winning a championship like I was at Murrayfield not that long ago. Um, we were interviewing for for my assistant role and I walked into the gym and I saw two boys that you know were the first two guys that I coached in Scotland wearing Edinburgh rugby kit, training with the pros. And for me, like that gave me such a buzz. That was like the equivalent of me winning a title. You know, there was two titles for me in that room and it was guys mm. who were achieving their, their professional ambitions. So that's what I really get out of bed for is helping guys chase down their dreams.
0: Do you think it's a culture that may be changing? And the reason I ask this is... With teaching at St Mary's, like when they start in first year, they mention, "Oh, you know," well, we ask them what what are your goals, where do you want to, where do you see your S and C career going? And a lot of them say they want to work in elite sport, uh, most notably with the like first teams or with elite athletes. But that seems less and less now, and it almost feels like there's a cultural shift because people are becoming aware of different career paths you can go in C, and just the importance of working with youth athletes if it's happening in football academies such as southampton and arsenal manchester united do you think that is slowly spreading to other sports in the uk as well or is it it's starting but it's still got a way to go
1: yeah i think it's starting but it's still got a way to go a part of it is, you know, kind of chasing logos and the glamour of being on Sky Sports <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, yep. you only need to look at the recent kind of survey that Rob Pacey did, which was specifically on football, to to kind of see the trend of longevity at that top level and also the work-life balance, the kind of salary stuff. You know, I've spoken quite a lot about with this with Simon Brundish, you know, and he was probably the first strength and conditioning coach in the Premier League with Coventry City. That tells you how long ago it was fact that they were there um you know that was like what 98 or something um and, he <laughs> now that it and he'll tell you he, he loves it and he's like Do you know what i got way better work-life balance and money's better like i'm having more impact and i think when you start out you don't know what you don't know and you go in and you experience the things and you maybe have some preconceptions of what it's like um and then when you get into it you're like actually you know i'm not having the impact i want to have or maybe i'm not doing as much coaching as i would like or even simple things like, you know, I didn't realize it was every day of the week for 11 months of the year. Like, you know, I'd like to try and hold down a relationship or I'd like to see my wife once every six months. You know, like the kids, it'd be great if they could remember who I was. You know, those yeah. sort of things. So people realize actually there there's a bit more to it than just the career. And I think the academy system certainly offers you a better work-life balance, but also depending on what your priorities are, perhaps the opportunity to make more longer-term impact you know, certainly that's what draws me to it. But I think you're right. I think it is a landscape that's changing um, as more research has come out around the specialism or, or the, the specific issues, challenges, requirements of of youth athletes. People are recognising, oh, this isn't just a case of we, you know, scale down what we do with the the seniors. Um, people are realising there's some specific intricacies of working with this population that people need to have the background understanding of, or the skills of, or people are recognizing now that it's its own set.
0: One of the key things that sort of resonated with me when you started describing what the scenario is like in, in youth sport is quite often that the weaker coaches or the newer coaches get put with the youth team with less resources. So all of a sudden they're at a very much a, a disadvantage. So if they are the weaker coaches, there's a higher chance that they may utilize strength training concepts which may not be appropriate for that level of athlete. And one of the key things when we decided, like, what were the key topics we wanted to cover in in this podcast was the misconceptions around strength training for youth athletes. And I said, oh, the old misconception of weight training is bad for youth athletes because it stunts their growth. Surely we've moved on from that. And your response was, actually, no, that's still quite prevalent in some areas. And I was like, really? So there must be, I wonder if there's a lot of misconceptions still surrounding youth strength training that I'm maybe not aware of or I thought were a thing of the past. If we start on sort of strength training with stunting growth, like, could you go into a little bit more detail as to, actually, that's a complete misconception that's a, that isn't quite true. You know, why is strength training actually good for youth athletes?
1: Yeah, I mean, you could argue that probably out of any population, strength training for athletes is probably the most beneficial. Mm. So, you know, typically, there's been the kind of urban myth of, of strength training stunts growth. And this, I mean, it's largely uninformed. It like, you don't need to dive into the topic too much to realize that's not true. So the big kind of fear around here is injuring growth plates. Now, people don't tend to, I guess, dig deep enough to, to question the bias or to really understand the research. Like, if you look at, where growth plates happen, they, they, you know, they're distributed throughout the body. So, for example, there's a growth plate in your wrist, you know, the, the ends of your long bones, et cetera. Essentially, while you're growing, they're the last things to kind of seal off. So you yep. know they allow for that bone to continue to grow, and then when you're fully mature, they kind of seal off, and and that's uh, the end of that. But because they're not fully um, developed and not fully ossified, there's the potential for them to be at risk of damage, for example, because they're still basically still pretty soft. Mm-hmm. So if you think of bone kind of being quite dense and quite kind of solid, those end growth plates are still a little bit mushy, if you like, Um, which means, you know, any forces that are pulling on them could distort them, um, etc. But at the end of the day, it's still quite robust tissue. So people have kind of had this misconception that if I stunt a growth plate, that's going to limit my final adult stature. If you break this down, so for example, if I fracture a growth plate in my wrist, that's not going to stop me getting to six foot five. You know, that's not going to have such a global impact on my final adult stature. You don't need to be a genius to figure that out. It's likely to create localized stunting, potentially, if you have a big uh, impact. But if you look at the, the types of things that create that the level of damage to stunt growth in the growth plate, you basically wouldn't allow your kids to do any sort of activity. Because if you dig into the research, it's essentially collisions. It's collisions with people falling out of trees, falling off bikes. And when you look at sport, you know, a lot of the research comes out of the States American football is one of the biggest areas in which they get this. Now, if you take off the pads and you let players pass or you force players to pass backwards, you've got sport rugby. On one hand, people will have no issue with a child getting injured on a rugby pitch or a football pitch or, you know, whatever, falling out of a tree, falling off a bike. But for some reason, in this controlled environment, we're like, we, we now have this, um, this fear that's completely illogical, right? Because on the rugby pitch, I can't control the weight of the opposition player. I can't control what speed he's running at me at. And I can't control necessarily when he impacts with me. Whereas in the gym, I can control what load you lift. I can speed it up and slow it down. I can have an, or should have enough control of the group to make sure people aren't randomly bumping into you when you're learning to squat. So actually, there's far more controllables in the gym than there is on the rugby pitch or on the football pitch or falling out a tree. You know, gravity is moving at more than eight meters per second. Good luck finding someone who can front squat eight meters per second. Doesn't happen. You know, that's like just way too quick. It's a bit of a misconception. One of those things that it's just an easy throwaway thing. Oh, yeah, stunts, stunts growth. Well, yeah. No, not really. High-impact collision, stunt growth. And the most likely place you're going to find a high-impact collision to stunt growth in a local growth play is going to be on the sports pitch or falling onto concrete off a bike or a scooter or whatever or falling out a tree. Like, it's high-impact collisions that cause these type of injuries. Now, in 10 years of coaching an athlete, I've never had an athlete fracture of bone in the gym. It hasn't happened. And, you know, if it did happen, there'd be a lot of questions asked, rightly so. So it's kind of like we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Meanwhile, there's a big elephant sat in the back of the room. It's like, oh, no, we can't strength train because we might have this injury. It's like, yeah, but you're allowing your kid to go and get absolutely smashed by 15 other kids every Saturday. <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't make sense. If you're going to let them do that, you should probably prepare them for it. Mm. You know, like you're literally just taking off all these kids' body arm and saying, off you go. Whereas actually we could use strength training to reduce the potential impacts of that sport on the body and to prepare them to to play as best they can, but also to protect them. Um, so, yeah, it kind of doesn't make much sense. The other big thing is if you look at other fields, so we know that bone is a living tissue. Bone responds to growth. So one of the big fields, is, which is a great comparison here, is astronauts. When astronauts go to space... If they don't find a way to load their bones, their bone degrade. And their bone essentially becomes very brittle. You know, their, their bone mineral density and integrity, when they come back down to Earth, it's compromised. So over the last, you know, 50 years, so the scientists have been figuring out how do we keep astronauts loading their bones in space because gravity's been removed. So they're not getting that loading. So if you flip that on one end, it's like, well, hang on, here we're trying to find a solution for people because there's no gravity and their bones are just diminishing. And on the other end, we're saying, oh no, we'll stunt their growth. It's like, no, actually bone responds to stress. So actually, it's almost the flip side. Strength training will actually help you create a more robust skeleton. It'll help you reduce the risk of fracture. It will actually produce more beneficial effects. So we're worried about stunting the growth when actually the opposite's true. You know, And there's plenty of research to back that up when they've looked at you know, youth weightlifters compared to age matched controls and even adults, youth weightlifters, you know, demonstrate more robust skeletons, better bone mineral density than adults or than their equivalents who don't, you know, engage in the sport of weightlifting. So actually, it's not, it's not even a neutral thing of like, oh, it's, it's not that it stunts growth, you know, it's fine. It's actually, you're missing out on this beneficial thing. It's not even we're avoiding injury. It's you're, you're missing out on the potential to lay down quality bone tissue at an early age that will serve you for life. So that's a big one that, you know, you're kind of combating. And these things, you know what it's like. The layman doesn't read journals. So they're not going to get access to this information. And so it takes a long time for public knowledge to kind of Mm -hmm. catch up. Another big misconception, you know, and it's worth mentioning actually around the strength training stunts growth and some of the other things. Like, now we've got a worldwide consensus on this, like... The United Kingdom Strength Conditioning Association, the British Association of Support and Exercise Science, the Australian Strength Conditioning Association, the American Strength Conditioning Association, and in fact, probably the most notable one, the American Academy of Pediatrics. So, a load of pediatric doctors and surgeons have got together and they've all produced position statements saying that actually strength training doesn't stunt growth and it's actually safe for kids um, if it's done in a, in a supervised manner from a proper qualified professional in a proper program. So, you know, if you think about the risk of getting sued in America, it's pretty high for them to come out and say that is like pretty emphatic that they are confident that based on the research and based on what we know that actually it's not going to cause that level of damage. Mm. So the second big one is, is around, you know, well there's no point cause they're not fully developed. Um, you know, they would, they're not going to benefit from strength and power training. We should just do core training. And again, that's not the case. Like, you know, we're looking at a really beneficial point in, in development of the youth athlete where you know, from a motor control perspective, they're, you know, learning skills and adjusting their motor patterns. But a lot of those gains are neural. You know, yeah, they don't have the, the hormonal response of testosterone or growth hormone to lay down muscle tissue. But strength and performance isn't all about muscle tissue. You know, we know a massive amount of that is the ability of the central nervous system to recruit the muscle mass that's already there and the firing rate and the rate coding and being able to organize the body in a way to respond to a stimulus and change direction, for example. Now, you can get those benefits by the age of 10. You know, like there's a lot of those that are neural. The system's already there. It's just waiting for the stimulus. If you provide the stimulus, it will adapt and then it it, it will benefit from it. So if you look, for example, at the youth physical development model that was produced by uh, Dr. Roger Lloyd and Dr. John Oliver, they've done a really good job of highlighting, you know, at what point in sort of an athlete's development should we look at emphasising strength and power? Should we look at emphasising hypertrophy or conditioning or sport-specific skills and you'll find that essentially it's kind of a bit of a conjugate model. Like it's like we should be touching on all these things all the time. There's bits that maybe when hormones kick in and, you know, now we've got surgeon surge in testosterone, well, now we're going to benefit the most from hypertrophy training because we've got the requirements to lay down muscle tissue. So we're going to, you know, maybe turn that up a little bit. But at a young age, we certainly can benefit from strength and power training because, well, we're already sprinting. Kids are already sprinting on the rugby pitch or the football pitch or, you know, athletics day. It's like we're already performing these activities, but we have this disconnect of going, oh, no, no, They're just sort of, you know, paddling around in the shallows. Like, they're not going to benefit from it. They absolutely are. So there's a lot of emphasis around that. So I would really recommend people check out the physical development model for more information and a visual of, of how, you know, we can organize training. And the flip side of that is a typical one is doing lots of aerobic conditioning at a young age. And, and at a young age, everything's aerobic. Like, they haven't developed anaerobic enzymes to produce high levels of sustained power. So it's like, if you allow growth and maturation to take place, you'll get this improvement anyway. So you're kind of flogging a dead donkey in that perhaps you're not going to get benefits from this angle, but you think it's safe because it's just kids running around doing their conditioning training. We're not going to touch the strength and power stuff because that's unsafe, but that's actually what we could benefit from. And we'll benefit a lot more from when growth and maturation kicks in. But actually, if you were focusing on motor control, developing really robust technique, especially around the areas of growth spurt, when things kind of need to be recalibrated after the kids get a bit of adolescent awkwardness and turn into Bambi on ice, you know, really focusing on movement quality and motor learning and motor control, you're setting them up for life. But what we tend to do is just say, right, let's do this interval training or this, you know, we'll do the bleep test or, you know, do four laps or whatever. It's just like, it's junk training. <clears throat> um, so that's, that's a big element. So, you know, I kind of touched on already about, about what people might sort of think of as windows of opportunity, which... And it was quite a scathing kind of review um, put out by um, a whole group of very, very renowned youth SNC researchers, kind of saying, "Well, that kind of came out of the long-term athletic development model by value." Mm. And again, this is something that the layman might not know, but that model wasn't peer-reviewed. They went down a different route. They went down a white paper route. So it basically became a governmental policy rather than a, a peer-reviewed piece of research. But it was taken as if it was. So people went, "Oh, this is you know." this is what we need to be doing. It's like, well, actually, there wasn't a whole lot of research to back that up. It was the best thing we had at the time, don't get me wrong, like, compared to what we had, which was nothing. Mm -hmm. It set a great framework. But things have certainly moved on from then. So that was the first time that, like, the phrase windows of opportunity popped up. And people kind of said, well, hang on, what research is there for that? That you shouldn't do this until then. Or you shouldn't, you know, you should refrain from strength and power training until they're 17, 18 and actually, yeah, there's maybe moments where we're a bit more sensitive to certain types of training, but we can certainly benefit from having a more conjugate approach and doing a bit of strength and power training, a bit of plyometric training, a bit of speed training, um, and not just going, oh, no, we'll leave those on the table until they're 17. Actually, you'll kind of, kind of, your nose know, to spite your face a bit in that. So yeah, there's a, certainly a lot of misconceptions and a lot of false information around training young athletes, and it's usually come out of people dipping their toe into the the topic and uh, you know as you know the Dunning-Kruger effect a little bit hmm. knowledge is dangerous people yeah. think it's you know yeah I know everything there is to know about youth training because I read one blog article
0: what's quite interesting about your descriptions there is that we we started on a misconception that was probably around like 10 years ago whereas when the value model came out and they started talking about windows of opportunity that wasn't really conceived as a misconception so really there, there's been a complete change so I over the last, what, 10 years? And I know there's quite a lot of good research groups in the UK which focus on strength training for youth development. So clearly we've gone from a part where the misconceptions are coming from, I don't know, very misguided, observational stuff. And then we've got the misconceptions are coming from early research and we're starting to disprove certain things and people are coming up with different ideas of what should be going forward. Is that? how you've perceived it as well and do you think this trend is going to continue and we're going to see past research start to be criticized in the in the near future
1: i think it's, it's just the nature of science in that mm. everything's definitive when it first comes out until it's proven otherwise and, and it's you know people need to view it as an evolving body of work you know and going well actually that's what we thought at that po- point in time but the more we've looked into it and as technology has improved and we can look at you know, more specific ways of measuring that ability. Actually, we now know this type of program is better than that type of program. And, you know, it's like you're constantly kind of almost funneling down the information to get to, I guess, the basic principles that we then stand the test of time. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think part of it's just the evolution of research um, and the evolution of knowledge and in the topic. A hundred years ago, people were studying child development, but they weren't necessarily studying it from a human performance element. You know, it was more around tracking, I don't know, growth along a period of time or um, you know, understanding adolescent development, et cetera. So as there's been more resources allocated to looking into this, or there's been more people interested in looking into it and, you know, more research is undertaken, obviously the, the body of understanding increases and people get more informed. Mm. And the nature of that is that you then realise, oh, maybe what we were doing ten years ago wasn't great. Like I'll be the first to say, if you look at what I was doing ten years ago when I was first coaching athletes, youth athletes, I'd probably tear my eyeballs out now. Like, you know, I've looked back and there's loads of things I would do differently, even from you know a few years ago. As, a, as mm-hmm. I am as as a, as a practitioner, evolving and developing and understanding things more specifically. Even just this last 12 months in lockdown, I've spent a lot of time learning and investing in CPD. And you know, when I come out of this, the way I coach people will have changed um, because of the knowledge I've learned in 12 months. You know, mm. multiply that over hundreds of researchers in a decade, things can change pretty quickly. But having people to have access to that information, to understand how to apply it, to then put it on a Monday night football practice, that's the bit where there's the lag, is is people getting access to this information, understanding and how to apply it to their specific context.
0: I remember giving a a youth and maturation lecture about 10, 11 years ago at the university, not long after I first joined. So it'd be interesting to go back and find those slides and see if, if what I was teaching was either outdated or incorrect. Yeah. Oh, yes. Like you said, it's the evolution of science. And it seems like we've got a good selection of researchers on youth development in the UK. And it seems to be occurring at the same time as we're getting a bit of a cultural change around youth coaching and more and more people are coming specialised in the area. And certainly the stuff that you're doing in this area is, you know, it's helping that cultural change. It's showing that this direction, S&C and youth training, needs to go in this direction. What's the next stage? Because you've obviously tried to improve the knowledge base out there by through your podcast athletic evolution would you be able to go through like what was your aim with developing that podcast and where is it going in the near future yes yeah, for
1: me it was um really a very intrinsic thing like it actually started during a period of immense frustrations so As i mentioned before you know i started a phd at Wolverhampton wanderers and that was actually looking at growth and maturation and, and selection biases in and, and academy football. And, you know, things didn't work out fairly quickly. And so I, I left there and I was um, unemployed for a little bit and then working in private health and really hating life. And I thought, man, I want to keep... I want to almost keep my finger in in the pie of youth sport. Um, so I just started blogging. And then over time, you know, my, my brother kind of challenged me and said, I think you should be great for a blog and do a podcast. And then it's all been very intrinsic, like at no point until... Well, now I really have really earned a penny from blogging or podcasting. It was just a very interesting thing of I wanted to get the message out there to people. And, and when I first started out, looking back now, I realized I was I was a strength, and coach, a strength and conditioning coach speaking to other strength and conditioning coaches. So I was in this echo chamber of people who always say, yeah, great, that's really... And I realized sort of six months to 12 mm. months in, I need to change the way I'm writing to make it accessible to the people that need this information. And that's mum and dad, sport coaches. It's, you know the volunteer coaches and administrators at your local club. So I I wouldn't say dumbed down. I changed the way I wrote to make it more layman's terms and more accessible. And that's when I started seeing the response. Mm -hmm. Because until that point, what I'd been writing just wasn't accessible for these people and it wasn't of interest, really. So when I changed across from the blog to the podcast, again, it was really just intrinsic. Like For me, it's always been me chasing down people I want to speak to. And I want to learn from and I want to mm. get their perspective on on what they think. So that was how the podcast started. And I would just, you know, speak to different guests about their specific area and, you know, their evolution as a practitioner, etc. And I had my hit list of the names that I wanted to get on. And looking back, I've pretty much exhausted that list of, of the people that I initially, you know, wanted to get on by Avery Fagenbaum, who keeps dodging my bullets. But yeah, everyone else, even <laughs> Roderick Lloyd I've had on. Sean Cumming, Craig Harrison, John Radner, like people who are at the forefront of the research in this area, but then equally people who are... Yeah, big names, yeah. You know, applying it. Steve Kernan at at Hibbs, Robin Eager at England Rugby, Amy and Megan down at Southampton Football Club talking about biobanding and and the psychological aspects of that as well. So it's been really awesome to speak to all these people. And, you know, you know what it's like when you speak to someone, you kind of then have that reference point to come back two weeks later and go, hey, what do you think about this topic? And and so the discussion continues beyond Mm. the the one-hour interview. And one of the big things that's come out of that is, is my relationship with Sean Cumming, who's probably the preeminent growth and maturation researcher, potentially worldwide. He's now been involved in a lot of projects in Scottish rugby because of that initial contact and, and me wanting to really drive that within Scottish rugby and say, look, the way we select athletes is really poor. We are just reinforcing a bias. We're picking kids at 14 because they're big and strong. Well, the reason they're big and strong at 14 and their mates aren't is because they're really maturers, mm. like. And we're falling down the same trap that people in football were falling down 20 years ago. But actually, football, arguably in this area, have advanced ahead. And we need to catch up with them and, and be looking more holistic. This athlete we're saying is talented. Are they really talented? Or are they just not you know on the, in the same maturation state as their peers? So mm. when they're making line breaks every two minutes, when they're scoring 20 tries a game, when they're smashing people for fun, well, actually, they're probably playing the wrong team. And it's not that they're a standout player, it's that they're an immature among, and they're literally, you know, a man amongst boys. So, you know, that's been mm-hmm. a big effect of the podcast is, is changing my practice and hopefully changing the practice of, of coaches. But a big takeaway for me is, like, what I wanted to do was essentially access, because I knew I could access these people at the highest level that, you know, mum and dad sport coaches at your local football club down the road couldn't access. So I wanted to get the knowledge from these people and make it accessible to these people who are around the corner. Because I know, you know, I know I've know i been there, I know what it's like. Someone's mum or dad steps into the gap and says, yeah, I'll coach the under-10s. They get put to a level one and safeguarding, and then they get left alone in that back pitch under one floodlight for the next 10 years mm-hmm. and get no resources, no input, no development. And that's, you know, yeah. that is where most of our athletes are coming from. So if we can help those coaches do just one little thing better, we make the athletes' experience better, we may be getting more positive experiences for them, so they'll stay in sport. Because they stay in sport, they'll get better. Because they get better, then, you know, we get more people at a regional hub because we get more people regionally where they get more people nationally. So, you know, it's a long-term project, but really it comes out of investing in your coaches at the grassroots level because they're the ones working with the athletes of tomorrow.
0: Regarding your point on selection and how originally we were, you were selecting athletes that were dominating, but it must be because they were more early maturers, so clearly you were focusing on certain KPIs there. What kind of new uh, things or factors do you focus on now because you are more aware of early versus late maturers and what kind of skill sets do you look out for because of your perception of what you think is needed to be uh, an elite performer later down the line?
1: Yeah, I think this really comes out of the understanding that like youth athletes aren't to adults. Mm. So when you're looking at that under-15s team, you're comparing apples and oranges and lemons and grapes and strawberries. You know what I mean? You're not comparing apples with apples mm. in that team because there'll be early maturers, late maturers on time. So you need, you know, and the research backs this up. You know, speak to Sean Cumming. He'll, he'll tell you about a lot of different studies where they got football coaches and scouts to assess performance on a match day. And basically, when they came back with their match grades, they pretty much just almost listed the players from the most biologically advanced to the least biologically advanced. It was nothing to do with skill level. Mm. They didn't realize they were doing it, but the bias was fully there. So, you know, round two, they they bipped these players up from oldest to youngest, you know, and then you start to see some changes of, of how people are actually assessing it. So that extra information of understanding where these people are, and that was just age, you know, that, that was chronological age. It's it, This is a really important point, actually. I, I want to, if this... One thing people take away, because there's a massive confusion in youth transitioning between relative age effect and biological age. So relative age effect is, is your distribution of your birth date in relation to the cutoff date for the selection of your sport. So for example, let's say the selection for the Scotland under 17 national team is January to December. So if you're born in January, February and March, you'd be considered the quartile one. If you were born in uh, April, May, June, quartile two, July, August, September three, so on. So what you see in pretty much most contact sports, football, rugby, et cetera, is an over-selection of, compared to a normal distribution, we'd expect that 25% of your players would come from one, 25 from two, 25 from three, 25 from four. What you typically see is this massive curve of mostly ones, hmm. a little bit less twos, a little bit less threes, barely any fours. Hmm. And people have fallen into the trap. And, and when I say people, I'm not talking about lamest terms. I'm talking about some, of, some people who are very vocal in this area and think they understand biobanding, have been very critical of it because they're like, oh, you're just pandering to the early maturer. Without mentioning this person's name, they think that biobanding is a solution to relative age effect and they've misunderstood the problem. It's two separate phenomenons. So for example, I could be a quartile one player. So my I could be born, in fact, I've had this, um, a scrum half who was born on the 1st of January. So he is the earliest of quartile one players, but he was a late maturer, right? So development isn't linear. So just because you were born in quartile one doesn't mean you're biologically advanced in quartile two, blah, blah, blah. Where you are born in the calendar year does not affect your biological maturation compared to your peers. So you could be a quartile four who's an early maturer. You could be a quartile one who's a late maturer. So the two are separate constructs. So relative age effect is basically where you're born in relation to the distribution of the selection year, whereas biobanding or physical maturation is your maturation state individually. So are you biologically advanced for your age, on time for your age, late for your age? Um there's some really great research coming out now. And it's kind of suggesting that because there's that underrepresentation of quartile four players, there's something special about them for them to hang in there. So actually, you probably find those quartile four players are early maturers because they have to be to just hang in there.
0: Okay, um, yeah. You know,
1: so there's, there's a lot of really interesting bits there. Like you see you see relative age effect take effect before maturation kicks in. So you, you if you went and sampled that under-9s team at, I don't know, Tottenham Hotspur or whatever, you will see relative age effect. Now those kids haven't probably hit maturation yet. So there's a separate construct here. Um, So people confuse the two. two. So relative age effect is one construct. Biobanding or physical maturation is a separate construct. And people need to view them independently and understand them independently. So that's a big skill set for coaches to wrap their head around. And that's something we, you know, certainly in Scottish rugby we're working on. Because you speak to coaches and they go, oh yeah, I know all about relative age effect. I'm like, separate thing. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, just because he's a quartile one doesn't mean he's an early maturer. Just because he's out four doesn't mean he's a late major. Like you we need to do more robust measurements to do that. So as you mentioned, from a skill set perspective, this is then going a level deeper. And, you know, it's actually not that difficult. Um, there's a lot of shared resources out there. Jay Salter's put out a really good um, Excel spreadsheet where you can, if you can get an athlete's date of birth and their height and weight, and you can get mum and dad, biological mum and dad's height, you can figure out their predicted adult height and their percentage of adult height. And that percentage will show you where they fall in relation to their peers. And you'd be surprised at how big that gap can be. Like, I'm speaking to Mandy Johnson, who was at Man United for 10 years. You know, they saw, saw gaps of up to four years biologically. So, someone could be playing for the under 12s. Me and you are both playing for the under 12s, but you're actually biologically 14, 15, I'm biologically 10, and we're on the same team. Well. Who's going to win that 50 50 tackle? Who's going, going to get selected? Yeah. Who's more likely to get injured, uh-huh. you know, in that 50 50 collision? So yeah, there's a lot of things around there and it's actually not that difficult. And that's, so that's a big thing we're pushing at the moment is getting that deeper understanding of going, okay, you've, you've selected this kid and you've told me he's really talented. But when we look at his you know, physical maturation scores, he's at 95% of adult height, which tells me he's basically fully developed. This one you're saying is not talented, is 85% of adult height. He's got loads more growing to do, loads more developing to do. So how does that influence our selection decision now? Because this guy's almost a finished article. This guy's not even close. Does that change your perception of him as a player? You know, now do you think, well, actually, the fact that he's even managed to hang in this long shows there's something about him. Whereas this guy's leading the pack and he's, his skill set's maybe average. Hmm. So for me, I think it's really people really getting confused around, it's not a level playing field at that age group. And you need deeper level of data or deeper level of understanding to properly assess talent, if it exists, in relation to physical ability. Um, Because maturation is one of the biggest things that will make you run faster, jump higher, and hit harder. So if you choose based on those elements, and you say, this guy is a standout performer, look at his stats on the pitch, he's involved in every second carry, he's involved in every second tackle, blah, blah, blah. You're really just choosing based on maturation, which makes you a pretty terrible talent ID scout. You know, I could do that. All we need to do is line him up and go, he's the biggest and fastest, let's Mm. pick him. We wouldn't even have to watch him play rugby.
0: That seems a bit crazy that, why that exists because to me if I didn't know too much about the area my initial thought would be okay which which athletes I'm viewing have the most potential you know I'm, I'm not looking at if they're the finished article there and then if they're in the under 14s or under 16s the key thing is how much potential do they have so the fact that they are judging them based on what they see in front of them rather than what they see plus what could be just seems incredibly narrow-minded even if you are not too familiar with how maturation affects uh, athletic development yeah
1: it's an interesting one i mean yeah you and me both know talent idea is a big rabbit hole <laughs> um so this is this is something that um you know some people have written quite well on are we identifying talent in its current form or are we trying to identify future talent or future performance because if we're identifying based on the metrics you know we show up and we do a physical testing day and we get all the kids to sprint and run and jump and all that kind of stuff and we go, okay, these are the results, these guys are the best, we'll take them. Well, are we assessing future performance or are we assessing current performance? Well, we're clearly assessing current performance, yeah. right? But if you look at the research, we know that there's a pretty tenuous link between youth-level performance and senior-level performance. If it was better, then your England under-18 would become your England under-21 team who would become your England full, team, mm-hmm. you know, senior team. You don't need to look at a few teams to figure out that's not the case. If you look back through, for example, if you look back through who wins the Junior Football World Cups, you'd be very surprised. Yeah. So some of the teams that win the Junior Football World Cups have never won a Senior World Cup. Well, if talent was linear, they would, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that team would go on to become the, you know, the next team and it would just be this very nice, logical, stepwise pattern. And that's just simply not what happens. And the reason for that is, is that maturation, you know, physical maturation certainly, it's not linear. And it's not rhythmical, like it goes in fits and starts and spurts. So there's a really great graphic that I like to use when I'm doing kind of coach education stuff. And it's that kind of, you know, cliche graph of what people think success is versus what it looks like. And I'm like, that's growth and maturation. <laughs> you know, people think it's like this. They'll go up in nice segmental, even lines. It's like forwards, backwards, side to side. Like, shall they have a growth spurt? You know, it slows down. Then maybe you have a little bit more. When you think about that from a talent perspective, that kid who's had a massive growth spurt, and his arms and legs are six inches from where he left them six weeks ago, he now can't catch a ball because his brain hasn't recalibrated to this new lever length. Hmm. You know, he can't sprint in a straight line because his brain can't organize these limbs anymore. So we also basically need to be more understanding of what's happening with youth athletes as an organism. And and the best way I describe this to coaches is, is it's a melting pot. There's this amazing fusion going on of physical growth of sexual maturation, of motor development, of psychological development. Like, there's so many things. It's like a Rubik's Cube. You know, we're all trying to figure out what's going on. And all these systems are developing at different rates, at different speeds. The tempo between two individuals could be completely different. So you could shoot up 10 centimeters this year. I might not grow at all, but I might go two centimeters a year for the next five years. And actually, there's a bit around, if you get tricked into choosing that early developer that shot up, you might have basically picked him when he's pretty much finished growing, whereas that late developer in the background, who's kind of almost that slow and consistent, he might actually overtake that first guy. But because it's more slow and steady, you don't notice it. It's not as a rapid increase in height. So what you typically see is that the the early maturers kind of finish maturing earlier. So they might be initially taller, for example, but the later maturers, it's kind of stretched out over a longer period of time. So they might actually end up being taller. So you've picked your goalkeeper at the age of 15 because he's six foot two thinking he's going to get to six foot five. He's finished growing. But that guy you didn't pick who was five foot nine is now six foot four. <laughs> who would you have rather taken? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of elements there that people, what fundamentally, with youth athletes, what you see now is not what you're going to get. And you need to be aware of that. And, and you know, the more information you can have about that, the more you can make an informed decision. And, you know, Sean Cummings got some great stories of players that clubs have let go that have gone on to, to do great things, but were told they were too small or too slow or too this or too that and they were just simply a late maturer. That was gonna be Kevin um, De Bruyne. Oh Kevin De Bruyne, no um, is one that he likes to bring up. Yeah, like he you know, he'll say they very specifically realised he was late mature and would need longer. Um, so there's a lot of interventions now you know, in football that they're bringing in by abandoning being one. But even Belgium have been very good in this area and having like a futures. So they have their national team and they'd have a futures team mm. of late developers that they were ticking over in the background. Now that's paid off for them pretty well. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, so there's a lot of interventions that people can make. But basically upskilling yourself in this area and increasing your, your knowledge and understanding will make you more adept at identifying, ah, that kid that I probably wouldn't have selected last year I'm going to give him an extra 12 months and see how he develops. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do. And and again, one of the misconceptions is that it's just about late developers. And people say, oh, you're just pandering to the late developer. Well, actually, we're also underserving the early developer because he's the big fish in the small pond. And when he then goes up to the men's team, he's not going to survive because he's not been challenged. So actually, what something like biobanding is all about and growth and maturation assessment is about providing optimal challenge. For that late developer, the optimal challenge may be to play with kids slightly younger chronologically, but who are at the same maturation level, for that that early developer, the optimal challenge may be to play, you know, upper level with kids that are biologically the same as him. Otherwise, we we're, we're you know, it's a misservice to both of these athletes if we make them play each other.
0: No, that's really really interesting, and good to see some practical applications with it. So, how has all of this information, all of this experience, come together to develop your own philosophy towards strength training for youth athletes?
1: Yeah, so I would say if, if you were to meet me the day after I graduated, you know, my degree in SNC at St. Mary's and ask me on strength and conditioning philosophy and compare it to now, it would be radically different. You know, years ago, I would have said everyone needs to snatch and squat, after to grass, and, you know, everything else will take care of itself. Mm. Now I have a very different view. Um, so I kind of like to think about training as like divided up into almost four stages. And this is what I've kind of put together as the philosophy for the. The region that I work in. So, when someone first enters our program, it's really about movement quality. So, what we're doing is setting the baseline for everything to come. So, for me, I don't care about the weight on the bar. I'm not impressed by quarter squats of 200 kilos. I'm not impressed by bench presses of 100 kilos. Like, I'm impressed by people who move well because I know if you move well, you're less likely to get injured because you're not going to find yourself in compromised positions that you're not prepared for. You can organize your body well. So that first stage we call learn. So this is just basically about learning the fundamentals. Basics of squat, pull, push, hinge, jump, land, brace, rotate. We're going to teach, you know, for the first three or four months, we're literally just teaching movement and understanding and basically, you know, can you figure out where your body is in space? Because that's what sport is, you know, that's sport in a nutshell. It doesn't matter how strong you are if, you're, if your feet are in the wrong place or if you're you know your proprioception around your shoulder joint is completely gone and you're compromised. It doesn't matter how strong you are. We then kind of move on to what I call the explore phase. So this is where now you've learned the basics of a bodyweight squat, for example. What I want you to understand is it's not about learning an exercise. It's about learning a movement pattern. So a good squat, you know, 90% of the time, if you can tick off heels on the ground, knees out over your feet and your chest up, you're probably going to be in a good position, right? So you've learned that with a bodyweight squat. What I'm going to do now is release a degree of freedom and create a little bit of chaos and see if you can adapt. So we're going to change the context. So now you're going to go from doing a bodyweight squat to doing a goblet squat. We've just changed one simple thing. You've got a bit of anterior load. Can you now reorganize your system and demonstrate those same principles? Okay, great. Now we're going to do it asymmetrically. So you're going to hold that kettlebell on one side of your body. Now can you adjust and counteract that? Can you do it on the other? Can you now do a front squat? Can you do an overhead squat? Can you so all we're doing, the movement pattern throughout the whole stream is consistent, it's squatting. But what we're doing is constantly messing with the context to give your brain the challenge to coordinate your body parts to then adjust to this new context. Mm. So if you can come through all that and demonstrate those same principles of of, heels down, knees out, chest up, I know you understand the movement of squatting. The same isn't true if all I do is teach you to back squat when you come in on day one and we just back squat and load you up. Hmm. I don't know that you understand squatting. You understand the exercise of back squat but when I hand you over to Jared at Edinburgh, and he goes, have you ever front squatted? And you go, no. Well, what's that going to look like? Mm. It's going to look dreadful, right? Because you've not put that tool in the toolbox. So what we're trying to do is basically give these athletes a toolbox of movement skills, of all these different uh, elements, so that they understand movement. This works particularly well when they're going through that growth spurt element, because as they're recalibrating, you know, as they're growing and their leaves are changing and their strength of elements changing just naturally, neurally it's almost like we're doing this recalibration constantly of recalibrating, oh, this is what it feels to squat like now with this extra you know, centimeters of length in my leg, or this is what it feels to squat now after a bit of a great spurt. So and that's a really optimal tool for that part of development because we're just recalibrating the system. Once we know you can demonstrate those principles and you can demonstrate across a number of contexts, and I understand that you understand what upper body vertical pushing is like or what upper body vertical pulling looks like, regardless of the context, that means you've got a really robust movement pattern. And now we can load you up and get strong. So it's not that we're you know, we all about movement and we don't get strong. It's actually we're setting the foundation first. There is this baseline that will serve you for life. And then once you've demonstrated the capacity to do that in loads of different variations, I know you know how to move, and now we'll load you up. And that's when we're going to go with the things like, you know, one and a half bodyweight bench, two times bodyweight back squat, you know, or whatever suits you. It might be a front squat for some individuals. So it's basically learn, explore, load, and then the final stage is explode, which is all about explosive strength. So it's looking at developing rate of force development. That's where your bias of exercises may change and it may become heavily, you know, the focus is those Olympic lifting variations or sprints and jumps and throws, plyos. You know, they're always there throughout, but it's just the priority is given in the program shifts depending on what the emphasis is. So that's kind of the, the way I organize training in my head is learn, explore, load, explode. Um, And that's kind of where we're we're going with. But what most people do is jump straight to load and explode
0: and then wonder why their athletes
1: can't move well and get broken. Yeah,
0: that's a really lovely framework because it it sounds like it's something that could be applied to any sport for a youth athlete, but pretty much all youth athletes, regardless of sport, we need to learn, we need to explore. But then how you load and how you get them to explode could be slightly different based on the context of the sport that they play. But still the framework remains the same. So you can really see the applicability of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think when you explain this to sports coaches and you break it down, it makes sense, right? Because if I teach that rugby player to come in and all you ever do is back squat, <laughs> that's like a sports coach or a rugby coach only ever teaching him to pass five metres off his right hand. Mm. He'll get really good at passing five metres off his right hand, but don't ask him to go left and don't ask him to pass more than five metres because he can't do it. So like when I say to the coaches, okay, what skill sets are you thinking about building with these players? I'm doing exactly the same thing at the gym. It's you know, strength is a skill, movement is a skill. So just like you want a player to be able to pass off right and left, you want, you know, your backs to be able to grab a kick, high ball kick. You're basically building a rugby player where you're dropping this skill in, and you're dropping this skill in, and you're dropping this skill in, because on the pitch, they'll need to be able to pull from any of those skills. It's exactly the same at the gym. You're gonna to need to be able to pull from all these skills in future training programs. And this is where I think people go wrong with strength and conditioning, particularly youth strength and conditioning, is they fall into this assumption that it's almost like they're going to have the athlete for life. Hmm. It's like, I don't know what where this athlete will go on to. You know, I've had athletes that have gone on to play for Harlequins. I've had athletes that have gone on to play uh, for Glasgow Warriors, Edinburgh. I don't know who, when you sign that pro contract, I don't know who the SNCC coach will be and what their philosophy will be. Maybe they're all Olympic lifting guy. Maybe they hate Olympic lifting. Maybe they just want to do med balls and sprints and jumps. Maybe they love front squats for some reason. Maybe they hate front squats. But if I can give you the skills to walk into any environment, and that coach can go, can you do X? And you're like, yeah. Then you don't need six months of upskilling. You can just plug and play and you're ready to train. But if you walk into that environment and he asks you to do something you can't do, I've failed you because I didn't help you develop that skill set. So I think this is where people need to understand where they sit in the spectrum of long-term athlete development, that it's not about what you want at this point in time, it's about what does the next guy want. you know? And just as if my rugby coach you know, wants to develop players who can catch, pass, tackle, do all that kind of stuff, because the next guy will work on the strategy and will work on team shape or whatever. Well, that's exactly the same from a strength perspective. The next guy will build the engine, or the next guy will max out your max strength or whatever it is. But he can't do that if I don't do my job properly. And I think there's um, a really good analogy of this. I don't know where I heard it originally, but and it may not even be true. Who knows? It's one of these quotes on the internet. It could have been Abraham Lincoln that said it. Who knows? Um, but it was <laughs> about Audi.
0: It's usually Einstein. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's always Einstein. Great guy. Yeah, so what the quote was basically saying was, and it was Audi that they used, and it may, it may well be wrong, but the, the premise stands, which is that they rotate the engineers that design the car with the, with the engineers that fix the car, So basically, whatever problem, whatever way you decide to design the car today, you're the one fixing it in four years, which I think is a great principle. Okay. Because you won't take shortcuts then, right? You won't put something randomly under the battery, which is really fiddly, and you have to take the battery out to to access, because you're going to be the guy that's doing it. So it's not like, oh, that's someone else's problem. You know, that, that kind of rotation idea. So taking that principle and going, okay, what are the potential problems the next person will anticipate and how can I help them to make the next guy's job easier? That's a, that's a principle people need to really mm. comprehend and use in their, in their coaching, I think, rather than going, oh, yeah, we won by 30 points in the weekend. It's like, yeah, but are your athletes actually developing?
0: I think what you described really shows how a youth training is a speciality. It isn't just training mini-adults, as you described earlier. It really is something so separate to training sort of adults uh elite athletes that sort of thing and because of that you know we need more specialist people in those roles so well i think what you're doing is is really great um tell me about the ltad network because i know that's something that you've got involved with and that's going to help develop these youth uh coaches
1: yeah so this is a really exciting initiative so people may have been familiar with what was previously performance which was um james baker and mike young i mean anyone who's even probably dipped their toe into youth training, you know, James Baker is arguably probably the world leader in this area in terms of boots on the ground, applied stuff, you know, and at both ends of the spectrum, you know, going from an under-resourced government school in Gloucester to then going to Aspire Academy in Qatar, where, you know, their budget is is pretty Mm. extensive and can do some funky stuff. So he's, he's been in that situation where he's trained 30 kids in a PE gym and he's been in the situation where he's got all the bells and whistles and he can do both. And he's been doing it for a long time. So, you know, they, for a, a very long period of time, have been putting out some really quality content in the form of their Child to the Champion conference and some of the videos around there and the platform they had. And then basically they've, they've decided to go a slightly different direction and create the LTAD network, which is basically the idea is to create a community of coaches around the world. And to have people operating all across the, the long-term athletic development mm. continuum. So to have people that are working with the pros, people that are working with youth, to really share knowledge and to share best practice, experience, and ideas. So there's a lot of content from, you know, that was pre-existing. So you can go on there and you can access lectures from Dr. Dan Baker, Alex Natira, Dan Pfaff, Craig Harrison, Lachlan Wilmot, mm. Joe Eisenman, Lee Taft, Ronnell Hobson, you know, Sophia Nymphius. like names that are like S&C, you know, royalty. Mm. Just for example, this week, I'm inheriting three ACL rehabs in the borders. I've been listening to the, the lecture with Boo Nader on ACL rehab. Like, that's massively useful for me. Mm. Um, so the idea is about creating this community of coaches. But it's not like your typical online course where it's self-paced and you, you know, you're away, isolated, and wherever. You know, there's regular roundtable events where you can come and kind of ask how this applies to your context or monthly meetups. And the idea is long-term, you know, when things open up again, to go back to that face-to-face contact of having regional events, workshops conferences coaching courses etc and the reason I joined forces with them is like it's very congruent with what I was trying to do you know I was obviously running my own podcast running my own again intrinsically motivated kind of I wanted to learn stuff about gymnastics I wanted to learn stuff about different elements so I was organizing workshops um, and conferences as well and they kind of approached me and said look we want you to, to come on board and when I heard their vision for for what they want to do And the potential impact, to me, it was just a no-brainer. So in the future, the podcast will be rebranding to to kind of come under the LTAD network banner. But yeah, there's an incredible platform there for people who are interested. And I would have to say, it's almost unbelievably cheap. And and the reason for that is it's recognizing that those people that maybe PE teachers or sports coaches don't have an infinite CPD budget, you know, so membership to the LTA network starts at 10 quid a month. If you're if you're not prepared to invest ten quid a month in your coaching, you should probably ask the question: Should you really be coaching? You know. So, um, for me, it's it's a really exciting project with the potential to to really be a global network of of coaches from the highest levels sharing their insights. So it's almost like, you know, when I mentioned what my the idea was behind my podcast, it's almost like a, another level above that. It's like this is not just now an audio thing of this person sharing their experiences. It's people talking about specific things of centric training for youth athletes or acl rehab or change of direction or, you know all these kind of things and then one of the, the biggest elements that i think is the most useful is you know over the years and a lot of coaches will have done this you kind of build your own matrixes for the way you envisage strength development or movement development and and james has done this from his perspective from a pe side of things and and obviously what he's doing with his youth athletes in Qatar now and he's put together a pathway curriculum and this it's funny because I have this conversation with people all the time who are like, oh, what should I be doing with my youth athletes? You know, whether it's PE teachers or youth sport coaches, whatever. this answers that question. You know, if there was one thing people could do, it would go on that and go to that pathway curriculum. They could change their practice tomorrow and it would improve infinitely. Like what James has put together there it is truly world-class. And it's funny because like when I saw it, I said to him, I wish you put this out ten years ago. You could have saved me so much time. (laughs) Because you know, when I matched it across to my own version of that, I was like, we've basically arrived at so many of the similar progressions and regressions because we've made all of the same mistakes and realised what doesn't work Mm. and narrowed it down to the ones that we think do. So, I think for a lot of people who are either at the beginning of their coaching career in an academy setup or in a PE situation, that is like sent from the gods to fix your problem. Like, go in there turn through that pathway curriculum, print off the handouts, you stick it up in your gym, stick it up in your office, and you have the roadmap for how you're going to get your athletes from day one of having never been in the gym to strength training and what those progressions and regressions look like, the key points, et cetera. So yeah, from here on out, anyone who asks me that question, I'm going to say go to the LTD, Hub and download or get on the Pathway Curriculum course, because it will answer your question far better than I could.
0: What's the What's the website address?
1: Uh, just com is where people can find that. There's two types of memberships, so people can sign up for the basic one, which is uh, as I said it's less than 10 quid a month, and then the VIP one, which kind of gets you into the, the Pathway Curriculum and the Pathway Development and kind of talks as well as 24 um 99 a month so it's pretty you know when you look at the cost of doing i don't know exos for example or precision nutrition you're looking at 250 300 quid a year for membership and access to people who are at the top of their game around the world it's yeah, you're going to struggle to get that anywhere else
0: and how can listeners access your podcast in its current branding athletic evolution
1: um so yeah we're on it's you know apple podcast you can if you've got an iphone you can just head over to the podcast app and just type in athletic evolution and it'll come up it's also out on Spotify, it's so the same thing. If you happen to use the Anchor app or Google Cast or whatever, all those ones, it's, it's all there. So yeah, you can check that out. Or if you want to head to the website, just athleticevolution.co.uk is where people can find out a bit more about my kind of side of things and, and what I'm doing, as well as the, you know, the, the podcast is kind of housed under the, the blog function there, so people can pick it up there if they want to do that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I recommend everyone, especially if you want to learn a bit more about the area before signing up for the LTAD network definitely go watch and listen Rob's stuff on athletic evolution it's really good and some amazing guests and it's really cool to hear that you know once you join forces with the LTAD network this is going to get bigger and better so what what an opportunity to get involved there if anyone has any questions how can they get in contact with you yeah so they could um fire over to the, the website or jump on instagram at athletic evo
1: uk and uh, you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Feel free to fire me a, a message or a comment or whatever. Or just email me, athletic at outlook.com. There's a place to get hold of me from this side of things. Fundamentally, the thing I would I would kind of really emphasize to people is if we can move away from this concept of the youth side of thing being a stepping stone and realizing it's its own specialism. You know, if you're interested, dive deep into the con- the concepts of growth and maturation monitoring growth-related injuries. Mm. Some great resources out there. Check out the RTAD network. Basies have a great growth and maturation certificate that Ben Bradley from Bournemouth. And again, it's Sean Cumming, Ben Bradley, Mandy Johnson, all the people at the top of their game have contributed to that, Kevin Till. So that would be a good place to start if this is a brand new concept for people. Take a step back, zoom out, and understand where you're operating in the pathway of this athlete's career. And what do you think is important in forming the foundation of that person's career? And do that don't do what's sexy, don't do what's on Instagram, don't do what you see you United mm. doing with the singing pros or in the rugby doing the singing pros, you know, do what that 16 year old in front of you needs and think about what does the next coach want?
0: Not, not what looks sexy or what will make you look good. Ah, brilliant. And as a final question, if you had to choose a guest for this podcast that you'd love to listen to, who would you choose? And that could be in your field of youth training or it could be someone else. It's up to you.
1: Um, One of the people that I'm really getting more and more interested in is James Clear. So if you've read Atomic Habits, he's someone that I love what he's doing and I use it a lot with my athletes. Um, You know, his framework for creating a good habit or breaking a bad habit, I think is incredibly useful for everyone. You know, whether it's someone trying to give up smoking or someone trying to improve their diet or starting an exercise habit. I just love what he's done with taking the research and breaking it down and making it accessible. And yeah, that's something when I'm speaking with my athletes about their nutrition, what I've realized now is nutrition is not a nutrition problem. Nutrition is an organization problem. And the organization of his framework of make it obvious, make it satisfying, um, make it easy. You know, that's not, that's about organization. How do we optimize your environment to do do that? Because then you'll form the habit of having breakfast every day or you'll form the habit of doing whatever. And then that habit will take you through life. So I, I love his work. James Clear is, yeah, for me, that book atomic habits was a it was a game changer so yeah i'd love to hear more from him
0: ah, that would be a good guest and especially because he'll probably go into many podcasts and talk about habits but if we can get him on a podcast like this and talk specifically of changing habits for sporting performance it'll be interesting to see what he says
1: mm. yeah yeah definitely and i think yeah it's a framework that that works for people across probably every walk of life really because everyone's trying to do something better right whether it's eat better or start walking more regularly or Mm. whatever people have realized they need to improve on they can use that framework because it works both ways whether they're trying to stop a bad habit or start a good one
0: Uh, definitely rob that was absolutely brilliant it was great to catch up mate and whenever you're down in england way (laughs) give me a shout yeah i'll come and uh, we can do a session in the garden exactly that cheers rob i'll speak to you soon
1: cheers mate thanks very much
0: Thank you to Rob Anderson for coming onto The Progress Theory and talking about his experience and ideas on youth strength training and coaching. So many takeaway messages in that episode and it is amazing to see just how far the area of youth training has come in the last 10 years. Not only do I think this is great but I think this is so necessary that youth coaching is seen as a specialist area. That way it can attract the best coaches for the job who have the right training, experience and skill set. Now, I just wanted to provide some final thoughts on some key areas which I thought stood out for me. Firstly, just how much of a minefield youth talent ID is. And it is crazy that some still fall in the trap of selecting athletes based on their current performance rather than actually looking deeper into how much potential that athlete has. It was great to have the relative age effect explained in detail to fully understand how it may influence the selection process. It's great to hear of strategies such as biobanding, getting players to compete against those of a similar biological age, are being employed to allow both early and late maturers to develop the skills that they need. An early maturer getting selected when they shouldn't and a late maturer getting overlooked are definitely outcomes which will be less common if we provide better environments for youth athletes to develop and finally how windows of opportunity have been so prevalent in youth athlete development models despite scarce support from the research and that using a more concurrent approach to training may be necessary for optimal youth development i hope you enjoyed this episode and it has piqued your interest in getting involved with youth coaching for more youth development content please check out rob's work with the ltad network for now Please follow and share at The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube. Head to our website, theprogresstheory.com and listen to all of our other episodes. We will see you in the next one.